Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Welcome to the Museum of London Docklands. Uh, in a slight change to the advertised schedule, I'm not Dr. Tom Wareham. You may be able to tell. Uh, my name's Georgina. I'm the Senior Creator of Contemporary History for Museum of London and Museum of London Docklands. And I'd like to welcome you here today. Do take the opportunity to look around our galleries while you're here, including the London Sugar and Slavery Gallery, to which Professor Catherine Hall contributed uh, around six years ago now. Um, it doesn't matter that Tom's not here, because the star of the day is Catherine, and um, she's going to be talking today about her work on the Legacies of British Slave Ownership Project, which is a huge research project that's been going for three years now, and thankfully has funding to continue for another three years, so there'll be more to come. And Catherine's a professor of history at University College London, and I'm going to just let her tell, tell you about her work rather than me telling you. Thank you very much. And um, I'm always really pleased to be here in this building um, and connected with this museum and this project here. Uh, so it's a pleasure to be hopefully, hopefully feeding your minds um, at lunchtime today. Well, here we are then in the, uh, gathered together in part of the warehouse of the original West India Dock Company. The West India Dock was built in 1802 and it was uh, established by a group of West India merchants who were concerned about the ways in which their shipping and their business um, was being impeded by other people's business and they wanted a dock of their own. And so they established a company and uh, this dock was constructed. It was a major um, construction plan, as you can imagine, uh, in uh, 1800, 1801. So it was a point of disembarkation uh, for slave-produced goods, the goods, the traffic, the ships coming in from the West Indies, bringing the sugar that sweetened the tea of the British public and made West India merchants rich. And for a short time, it was also the point of embarkation for London's slave ships. London was, of course, a key site uh, for the ships leaving for the West African coast and then traveling on that terrible journey, the Middle Passage to the Caribbean. So when you're, you know, when you're out there and there you are surrounded by all these very nice looking restaurants, all empty, I have to say, but anyway, there they all are, uh, all along the side of the dock buildings and then the DLR um, station at the end of the road, which is perhaps where you came in, um, West India Dock. You know, how many people who disembark from those trains are actually wondering about why it's called West India Dock? What sense do they have of that really deeply troubling history that is connected with this place? Maybe you also came, possibly, you came through Hibbert's Gate, I don't expect you did. It's the gate at the back, and it's the old gate, the memorial gate to the dock itself. And if you haven't had a look at it, do go and have a look at it. It's named after George Hibbert, who was the chair of the West India Dock Company, who was a leading West India merchant, probably the leading West India merchant in London in the early 1800s, who was a strong supporter of the slave trade and slavery 
whose family, his uncle and his brother, were making uh, fortunes for the family um, in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, where they had extensive plantations. And George Hibbert organized the business as a sugar factor and um, merchant in London, working from the city. And if you haven't been to it yet, and you have the time, do go into the London Sugar and Slavery Gallery, which is right next door, and you'll see the extremely imposing portrait done by the great portrait painter, um, Sir Thomas Lawrence, of Hibbert, looking a very, very benevolent merchant, looking like a prosperous, untroubled man. And then just think about the business that he was actually involved with. And if you have the time to go and look, you'll see the very interesting way in which his portrait has been hung, which might give you some thoughts. Okay, so uh, you might also have noticed, possibly, as you came in, the, the statue standing just opposite the entrance to the, uh, to the museum. And that statue is a statue of Robert Milligan, who was uh, George Hibbert's co-director of the West India Dock Company, another very prominent West India merchant and uh, he's, he's standing on, a, you know, on the plinth, and what the plinth shows is an allegorical scene telling us about the way in which commerce brings prosperity to Britannia. So yet again, think of what that commerce was and uh, about the, uh, the exploitation and the violence which lay at the heart of that prosperity. Well, then you come to this occasion, and you come in to the Wilberforce Room. And Wilberforce, of course, is the name that everybody remembers, the name associated with abolition, the abolition of both the slave trade and slavery, the saintly Wilberforce, as he's often described. And it is that memory of abolition which is strong in British culture, rather than the memory of the slave trade and slavery. And the work that uh, we've been doing at University College for the last few years, uh, and which I want to tell you a little bit about today, um, is trying to, as many other people are, trying to rejig that way of thinking a bit, reconfigure that way of thinking about Britain's history, remembering what came before abolition and why abolition mattered so much, and what the legacies of that slave trade and slavery have been uh, for Britain. So, four years ago, we established uh, a publicly funded project at UCL which is concerned with remembering Britain's intimate involvement with slavery, what Britons have owed to the wealth produced by slavery, what the, what the legacies of slavery are for modern Britain. Well, how have we tackled this? Obviously, there are many possible ways of approaching this subject, but we've done it through a focus on slave ownership. And our logo, which you can see here, is of the, well, I'll explain it in a minute because it, it's a little bit complicated what it is, but I will explain it. So we're, we're going in through the lens of slave ownership. And obviously, the slavery business, the whole slavery business, had huge tentacles in British society. It's not just the plantation owners, the absentees, as they were called, who lived here and who were living off the fruits of that 
business. It's also the people involved with the Navy, shipbuilding, sugar refining, metal manufacture, toy manufacture, textiles, finance capital. I mean, we can trace all the ways in which the slavery business, the tentacles of it, went deep into British society. So not a superficial matter at all, employing, as the slave owners wanted everyone to know, employing hundreds of thousands of people in different ways. But we're focusing then on uh, this question of the owners. And we're doing that uh, because uh, when slavery was abolished in 1833 in the Caribbean, Mauritius, and the Cape, not in the rest of the British Empire, remember, so it's not just blanket abolition, just in those areas. The power of the West India interest, of the West India merchants, was such that they were able to drive a very hard bargain with the government in order to get the legislation through Parliament. The West India interest was well represented both in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords, and their support was needed to ensure that abolition would be passed. And so a, a negotiation went on, a tough negotiation went on in the period before abolition between the West India Committee and the government. And what they managed to achieve was that the government would raise 20 million in taxpayers' money, which would be paid to the slave owners for the loss of, quotes, their property. So enslaved people who were being freed were viewed as the legitimate property of the slave owners and they were to be compensated for them. So John Bull here, the British taxpayer, is having the 20 million taken out of his pocket by one of the very content slave owners. Now in addition to that 20 million which they got as an outright gift that's probably equivalent, we estimate, to about 16 billion in today's money. And it is kind of ironic that last week, as you may have seen, the uh, victims of British torture and uh, internment in Kenya were granted 20 million in compensation for what they had suffered. 20 million today, of course, each of those people was going to get 3,000 pounds for, the, for what they suffered in that period. And so it's just kind of ironic that 20 million now, which of course is worth, you know, maybe it's worth 20 houses in London, since we know now what property in London costs, uh, as opposed to the 16 billion that went to the slave owners. So just think of those two figures next to each other. So in addition to the 20, billion, 20 million, which was divided up between the slave owners, they also uh, forced through an agreement that the enslaved who were supposedly being freed would have to do between four and six years free labor for their owners, uh, which was called apprenticeship. So the, you know, the description was that these people would have to learn how to labor. Now, of course, they'd been learning, they'd been laboring on the plantations all their lives but now they were to be apprenticed, so they would learn how to be free labor. So after abolition, there was then a long campaign in order to abolish apprenticeship. So 1833 was in no way the end of the story. 
Well, in order to get their hands on this 20 million, each of the slave owners had to, to put in a claim to a committee which was established, a commission was, which was established. And all those claims were recorded and very careful uh, documents were prepared about all the claims, who they came from, how many enslaved people they were claiming for, which of the islands, which of the territories they were claiming for, and so on. And all those, that whole archive, including what money each of these people got, is in queue in the National Archives. And up to very recently, nobody had the capacity to work on the detail of these documents. It needed, first of all, computers and computer skills, and then it needed a team of people to work on it. And that's what we've been doing. So we've used the compensation records, as they're called, as our starting point for our work. And then what we've tried to do is to follow the legacies of these people who were in Britain, not all the claimants, because there were, there were 47,000 claimants who we've uh, documented in our database, which you can go and look at. I'm just going to... This was, of course, this was the basis of the public campaign for abolition, that men and women should not be thought of as the property of other men and women. Am I not a man and a brother? Men and women should not be thought of as the property of others. Nevertheless, although that was the moral basis of the campaign, what happened was that the slave owners got compensated for the loss of their property. So there's a fundamental contradiction in the way in which these two things happened. So when the claims were made, this is the form in which they were shown to Parliament. Uh, a whole listing was made of all the claimants and the money they had got. So this is the first sort of set of records that we worked from, which are then backed up in the National Archives by all the manuscript materials, uh, which this is a kind of condensation of. And I just chose this one to show you because you can see here the name of John Adams Wood. And John Adams Wood was the owner of Mary Prince, who some of you may know the history of Mary Prince, which is the one uh, story that we have recorded by uh, an enslaved black British woman uh, who told her story to an amanuensis who wrote it down, and it was published as the history of Mary Prince and published as part of the propaganda campaign by the abolitionists. So John Adams Wood, the particular interest in him is that he was the owner of Mary Prince, and he was claiming here for enslaved people in Antigua. So then this is just to show you uh, the database, the encyclopedia, which we have created which you can go into. It's publicly accessible online, www.ucl.ac.uk, LBS, which stands for the Legacies of British Slave Ownership. And you can simply put in a name or a place, and you can start tracking the work that we've done. And I have to tell you that we have had, in the first fortnight after this uh, database came online, we had over 100,000 hits because people are so interested 
in tracking their family histories, looking for the connections that they or people they know or places they're interested have. So all that material is there for you to look at. Well, of the 20 million pounds, nearly half of that money stayed in Britain. Uh, in other words, uh, it went to absentees, people who had ownership of enslaved people in the Caribbean, nearly all in the Caribbean, a few in Mauritius, a few in the Cape, but the vast majority of the money came from the Caribbean. And that doesn't mean that those people had necessarily spent time in the Caribbean. Often they were simply owners, or they might have been banks who had received mortgaged property because of the problems that the slave owners were facing in relation to debt and all the difficulties which they faced in running plantations. So we've been tracking the people who got the money here, and that's about 3,000 people. And we have created, insofar as we can, biographical material about who they were, what they did with the money, what they did politically, what, they were, what their influence was culturally, the things they wrote, all those kinds of things that we can find out about them. And it's all there, available uh, on the, in the encyclopedia. So what I wanted to just tell you about briefly today, in the short time that I have left, I wanted to talk about one particular family. Because family stories are just such a fascinating part of this material. And of course, one of the things that people are discovering is that all kinds of people who thought they had no connection at all with slave owning are discovering that they do have connections. And of course, this is a very entangled history between African Caribbean uh, and uh, white British people. So that all the illegitimate children who are mixed up in these records are, of course, parts of the lineage of the entangled histories which we share in Britain today with the Caribbean. Entangled histories. This is not to do with pointing fingers and saying this person was a nasty slave owner. It's to do with trying to understand the ways in which we are all implicated in this history, which is a shared history. And the West India Dock is just such a wonderful symbol of that. You know, the water going out, the Thames going out to the Atlantic and making that connection. And of course, hardly anybody goes by ship these days, but still, it's still a symbol of the connection. And this building itself is a symbol of the connection, of the connected histories that we share. Well, the family that I thought I'd tell you a little bit about is the family of the Kingsleys. And this uh, particular family story, just the little bit that I'm going to tell you of it, connects Barbados, Jamaica, Australia, and of course, England. Well, some of you may have heard of Charles Kingsley. Here he is, Charles Kingsley, a very well-known writer, intellectual, historian, Christian socialist, novelist, sanitary reformer, a member of the Victorian intellectual elite, uh, involved in all kinds of public controversies, wrote uh, his most popular novel, um, was a novel called Westwood Ho, which probably none of you have read. Maybe somebody who's a bit older might have read it, but 
in the 19th century. It was republished 92 times. It was an amazingly popular book. Charles Kingsley was a very, very well-known figure. And uh, he was a patriot and an imperialist. He was the professor of history at Cambridge for a while. He was involved with endless different public enterprises. Well, Kingsley's maternal grandfather was a judge in Barbados called Charles Nathan Lucas. And one of the um, things that we've been turning up in this work is how important marriage is, how important family is in all these histories, the ways in which marriages are so critical in linking one family with another, how the patterns of inheritance work across families, and so on. So imperial families, the families who operate across, you know, often the, the new colonies of white settlement, India, the Caribbean, moving out from England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales to all these different sites, these whole patterns of migration in the 18th and 19th century. This is an imperial story. It's a global story that stretches all around these different sites of the world. Well, Charles Kingsley's maternal grandfather then was a judge in Barbados, and the Lucas family had been in Barbados for five generations. So they're an old Bajan family. And he also owned uh, property in Demerara, which became British Guyana. Demerara was the new colony at the beginning of the 19th century, which was tremendously prosperous because it was new land that hadn't been planted for sugar previously. And people in the 1800s and 1810s were making huge fortunes from Demerara. Most spectacularly, John Gladstone, William Gladstone's father, who made a fantastic fortune in uh, Guyana as it became. Well, when compensation happened, uh, the Lucas family got over 3,000 pounds for 157 enslaved men and women on their properties. And Charles Kingsley, who was the son, of course, of the, he's the grandson of the actual slave owner, Charles Kingsley later told one of his close friends that emancipation ruined me. The loss of those West India properties was a terrible, terrible loss in his mind. Well, Kingsley was very influenced by Darwin and he was convinced of the power of hereditary. And he believed that it was descent on his mother's side from a pure West Indian family. You understand that in the 18th and 19th century, West Indian means white. It's only in the 1950s, when Caribbean migrants start coming in significant numbers to Britain, that West Indian starts to mean black. It's one of those terms that just has a rather dramatic change. So when I talk about the West Indians and the West India interest, I'm not talking about black people at all. I'm talking about white people. So Kingsley thought this white West Indian family was where he got his strength, his manliness, his vigor, his courage, all the things that he believed in. And Kingsley was particularly associated with a form of Christian manliness, Christian muscularity, associated with his friend Tom Hughes's book, Tom Brown's School Days, you know, the ways in which boys should be trained to go out and conquer the empire. And Kingsley was very, very critical of what he saw as the effete, 
feminized weakness uh, that he saw all around him in Britain. You know, not enough cold showers, not enough cold baths, people weren't clean enough, um, not enough manly exercise of any kind. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on about what was manly, but I think you probably get the idea. Well, as a boy, Kingsley was very influenced by his grandfather, and he loved his grandfather's stories, which stayed in his mind, as grandfather's stories often do. And he particularly loved a story which his grandpa told him about the time when there was a terrible earthquake in St. Vincent. And St. Vincent is not that far from Barbados, and the, the waves from the earthquake in St. Vincent were felt in Barbados. And according to grandpa, Everybody in Barbados, except him, panicked. All the Negroes, as he calls them, were rushing along the streets, screaming and hysterical, jabbering and hysterical and terrified. And all the whites, who never went to church, suddenly fell on their knees and started praying. But he remained calm. He sat in his study and he studied natural science to understand what the nature of these waves was and what would happen next. So the belief in resolution and courage and staying firm, these were the messages that uh, Kingsley took from his grandfather. And uh, Nathan Lucas had been uh, with Admiral Rodney on his ship, the Formidable, when Admiral Rodney conquered the French in 1782 and saved the British West Indies from the French who were trying to um, seize it from them at that time. There were endless wars at the end of the 18th century and struggles between the British and the French. So Admiral Rodney is a very, very important figure in white Caribbean history. His statue stands, there's a glorious statue to him in the main square in Spanish town, the old, the old capital of Jamaica. So this connection between Rodney and the conquest the conquest of the French and so on is another very important thing for Kingsley. National pride. So, uh, well, this is my next picture, which is Charles Kingsley's statue in Biddeford. And Biddeford is where the family came from in Devon. They're an old Devonian family on his father's side. Uh, and Biddeford, of course, is uh, on the sea. And his, his novel, Westward Ho, this extraordinarily popular patriotic novel, um, the, the uh, hero sets out from Biddeford on his way to the Caribbean. Now Kingsley's brother-in-law, I told you how important families are, Kingsley's brother-in-law was a historian called James Anthony Froude, who was later to write a deeply horrible book about the West Indies when he went there. But Froude uh, was uh, a tremendously influenced by Thomas Carlyle. And Thomas Carlyle was, of course, the great prophet of the 1820s and 30s, the man who was warning everyone from his heights uh, about the terrible issues which England faced, about the dangers of mechanization and industrialization, about the whole, what was called the condition of England question what's wrong with England? I think we could do with a what's wrong with Britain kind of question now, but, but not with a Carlyle to answer it. So Froude and Kingsley were both very influenced by Carlyle, who was later to write 
uh, at the end of the 1840s, a terrible diatribe um, against Africans. Um, and uh, Froude took from Carlyle uh, this story of um, England's of, of, of England's decay and the need to recover uh, important um, a sense of uh, power and glory and courage again. And Froude looked to the Tudor period as the, fo the formation of the great global, England's great global empire. So he wrote a 16-volume history of England, which is all about the Tudors. Now, maybe some of you are into the Tudors now. I certainly am, because I love Hilary Mantel. And so, you know, we all know that Anne Boleyn is on television like every other day. So there's great interest in the Tudors now. But when Froude wrote his history, there was no interest in the Tudors at all. They were seen as a very retrograde lot. And Froude rescued them. And he represented Henry VIII as a great monarch who formed the, nation, the new nation state, and Elizabeth I as the conquering queen who encouraged colonization and expansion. And of course, this is the period when Drake, Raleigh, Hawkins all go out to the Caribbean and slave trading, trading starts and the Caribbean empire uh, begins to be formed. So the heroes for Froude are indeed Hawkins, Drake and Raleigh, who he sees as simply heroic figures. And so Westwood Ho is a, um, a romantic version of Froude's history. It's a colonial romance about beautiful, blonde, uh, court Devonian lads, you know, with their blonde locks and their white skin, going out and um, finding the savagery and barbarism of the Caribbean and bringing civilization in their wake. So here are, the, here are the galleons going out, which is the story that, uh, that Kingsley tells. First, he tells the story of the conquest of Ireland and then uh, of the Caribbean. So now Kingsley, um, as I said, was a very well-known public figure. And uh, in the 1850s and 60s, he was always involved with different public causes and all kinds of things going on. So he appeared in the press a lot. Now, in 1865, there was a rebellion in Jamaica, a rebellion at Morant Bay in Jamaica. And at that time, this man, Edward John Eyre, who didn't look quite as grizzled at, in 1865, this is a portrait of him from rather later on, Eyre was the governor of Jamaica. And when this rebellion happened in Jamaica amongst country people uh, in an area called St. Thomas, Eyre was convinced that it was a major black war and that the aim was to overthrow all whites, as indeed were many of the white population in Jamaica. So he responded with absolute vigor and brutality. And in the wake of the rebellion, uh, many people were executed, many people were whipped, many people were tried in, uh, under martial law. Uh, and gradually, the news got back to England about what had happened, the draconian response to what was initially a very, very minor set of events. 
And for two years, there was a big public debate in England about the rights and wrongs of what Governor Eyre had done. And the Victorian intelligentsia divided up between those who supported Eyre, and leading figures were John Stuart Mill and uh, other scientists, Darwin, Lyle, they supported, they were on the side of Eyre and thought justice had not been done. And those who defended Eyre were led by Carlyle and included Dickens, Ruskin, and Kingsley. And Kingsley, in fact, encountered Eyre just when he'd arrived back in Southampton. And just by chance, Kingsley was in Southampton, and he welcomed Eyre and was then rather horrified at the huge public response uh, in Southampton when a large crowd of working-class men and women uh, attacked him for his support of air. So Kingsley's support of air and his support of slavery during the American Civil War, uh, he supported the South during the American Civil War, um, began to label him as a particular kind of, having a particular kind of politics. So this is just a representation of the Morant Bay Rebellion there. Well now meanwhile, while all this is going on and Kingsley has become a very controversial figure and has become very troubled, in fact, by the way in which attention has been drawn to his um, extremely reactionary position on Morant Bay. Uh, his brother, Henry Kingsley, had done what a lot of other uh, children from families that had been West Indian families did. He went to New South Wales because West Indian families who saw that the West Indies was no longer going to be a source of great prosperity, instead of sending their younger sons to the Caribbean, now started sending them to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the Cape. These are all areas that are being uh, settled. There's a huge wave, expansion of settlement in the 1830s, uh, what a historian called James Bellich calls the settler explosion of the 1830s. And numerous uh, West Indian connected families, people from those families, go uh, to these new colonies of white settlement. And we've been tracking some of them on our encyclopedia, on our database. So Henry Kingsley went off to seek his fortune, not in Barbados, where you know, his um, grandmother's family had been for ages, um, but in New South Wales. And he tried sheep farming, and he was no good at that. He tried gold digging because this was when the um, gold rush happened uh, in uh, Australia. He wasn't much good at that either. And he came home an unsuccessful migrant and he ended up in his brother's back garden in a small cottage with a half-finished novel about Australia. And he never made a go of it financially for the rest of his life. He was a bit of a burden to the rest of the family. But he did write two very successful novels, both about Australia. And what's interesting about these novels is the ways in which they represent indigenous people in Australia, the Aboriginal population in Australia, because they're all about white settlement. And he regards Aboriginal people, as it was conventional to regard them at that time, as a dying race. They're represented in these novels as steadily moving towards extinction. They're savage, they're barbaric, 
they're hopeless, they're ugly. I mean, the descriptions of them are very ugly descriptions. And again, we get the comparison between the beautiful blonde white settlers that his brother has described, um, who his brother describes in comparison with uh, indigenous peoples and Africans in the Caribbean. For uh, Henry Kingsley, it's Aboriginal people in Australia that he's describing. So these descriptions, these stories about the peoples of the empire are being percolated through these novels that these brothers are writing. Well, in 1865, Henry Kingsley published an essay about air. And he obviously, at the time that he published it, he didn't know what had happened in Jamaica. It came out that summer. And it was a story about how Eyre was a brilliant explorer in Australia and how he was a protector and defender of Aboriginal people. So this, was a, a, this essay was published in Macmillan's magazine and the evidence from this essay was used in the controversies about what kind of person Eyre was. You know, was he a brutal tyrant or was he really a kind protector of uh, indigenous and native peoples? So there's a whole correspondence in the Times about this with one side saying he was this and the other side saying he was that. So Henry Kingsley too is right in the middle of all these controversies. Well, the last drama in this particular bit of this family story, which you've got about three minutes for, is that uh, Charles Kingsley um, eventually, in 1870, went on a journey to the West Indies, which he always wanted to do. He loved the romance of the West Indies, as he saw it, which had nothing to do with slavery and the plantations. It had to do with buccaneers and pirates and the conquest of the French and you know, these pure West Indian families uh, and the good things that they had done. So in 1870, off he went uh, on a six-month journey, and he wrote a journal about it, which was then cleaned up for publication. But fortunately, we have both versions of what he wrote, the, the series of letters to his mother and the uh, cleaned-up version, which he then wrote. And he spent most of his time in Trinidad, and he was conducted around Trinidad by the then governor of Trinidad, and the big problem that the plantocracy faced in the wake of emancipation, you know, in the days, in the decades after slavery, was who was going to work on the plantations. They could no longer rely on African labor, so what was going to happen? And the answer to this was seen in bringing in Indian indentured labor. And large numbers of Indian indentured laborers were brought into Trinidad and Guyana, particularly. So that that's why the populations of both Trinidad and Guyana now, about half and half of African descent, half and half of South Asian descent. So going round Trinidad, uh, Kingsley uh, argues that, of course, the real hope for this country is more white migrants. What we need is more people like those men who settled in the past. Men like him, men who would you know, um, do hard work and discipline their labor and organize themselves and so on. 
They could be, he says, little centers of civilization for the rest of the society. But then in the hierarchy of how people might function in this society, then come the Indians, the coolies, as everyone called them. Because coolies, he thought, were much more industrious and docile than Africans. They came from a society which had been civilized. It was stagnant. It had, you know, its civilization was long, long ago. But they could be rescued. It was true they had terrible superstitions and ridiculous religious beliefs. But they could, there was more hope of rescuing them. And also they had proper family lives with domesticated wives. And they, he argued, could educate uh, black people. So coolies would educate black people and bring them slowly, 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 slowly into civilization. So this is the story that Kingsley tells in his last book, which is called At Last. It's a story of a hierarchy of races with whites as the civilizing agents, uh, coolies as the next layer down, and Africans as the ones who might, might, might eventually enter civilized society fully. So these are the stories which the Kingsley brothers are telling uh, not just the British public, but a global public. These books sell large numbers in Australia, in the United States, and so on. These are the ways in which slave-owning families are passing on stories about what race means. These are the reconfigurations of racial thought which are going on in the period after emancipation and which demonstrate to us how nothing ended with abolition. Something else happened, but the something else left huge legacies of inequality, which we are still living with today, and we still need to address. Thank you very much. <laughs>